Welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Lowe, and with me is Dr. Stephanie Edmonds. We are both PhD-prepared nurses and the founders of Woman-Centered Health. Join us as we talk with health professionals and researchers who can help you improve your communication with patients about sexual and reproductive health. Please visit our website to learn more and connect with us on social media by going to www.womancenteredhealth.com. and welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. Today we are speaking with Dr. Rebecca Clark, an assistant professor of nursing at UPenn and a nurse scientist at Pennsylvania Hospital about nursing culture and health outcomes. It's been a while since we have spoken with the researcher, but Rebecca has a very interesting story that has informed her current research, so we're excited to be speaking with her today. I also just want to give a heads up to our listeners that one... I am very pregnant and very short of breath, so I apologize if I sound really breathy these next few episodes until baby comes out. Number two, we're also undergoing a massive bathroom renovation, so it may sound like my house is falling down in the background, so please give me some grace today. But we also want to remind our listeners that you can find our newly redesigned show notes on our Patreon page by becoming a patron and supporter of the Woman-Centered Health podcast by going to our website, www.womancenteredhealth.com, and by clicking on the support us slash Patreon tab. Hi, Rebecca. Thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast today. So the first question we always ask our guests is if you can share with our listeners the details about your background. Well, thank you, first off, Stephanie and Nicole, for having me. I'm so excited to be here, thrilled to be with you guys. And Nicole, we just underwent a bathroom renovation ourselves, so I really empathize (laughs) with the pain you're going through right now. But it's worth it in the end. So a little bit about me. As Nicole mentioned, uh, my name is Dr. Rebecca Clark. I am a nurse and a midwife and currently an assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing and a nurse scientist at Penzi Hospital. And so my background is that I went to school for something completely different, but I had wanted to be a midwife since I was a little girl. And so I went to school for something different. It was like, I don't want to teach Latin or Greek to anyone. I don't want to get a PhD in it, but you know what? I still want to be a midwife. And I didn't really, I hadn't known anything about nurses before. I thought they were just sort of the doctor's handmade. Um, But by that point, I had more friends who were in nursing school and I had learned differently. And so the place where I was at, they had a midwifery program. So I went and I became a nurse, worked as a med surge nurse for a number of years, and then went back and became a midwife, worked as a midwife in West Virginia, which was awesome. And in that process, I started to have this really strong sense that the people that I worked with, we wanted to provide good quality care to the women that we served. And I started to have all of these questions about the care we were providing and the outcomes that I was seeing. And I didn't have answers. And so I'm like, well, if I have questions and no answers, I should go and do research. (laughs) That may or may not be the right answer, but that was the answer I came up with. (laughs) So I went and I did a PhD at Johns Hopkins uh, School of Nursing. And in the course of doing that research, I was looking at the outcomes of postpartum hemorrhage and primary cesarean section among low-risk women. And, you know, I thought to myself, well, My experience both as a nurse and a midwife taught me that where you work makes a difference. The kind of environment that you're in makes a difference. And I think most of us have that lived experience of like where you work makes a difference. And I was starting to learn like where women give birth makes a difference. And I'm like, you know, I'm not capturing that system piece 
in the research that I'm doing right now. You know, amazing that I was able to go to Hopkins and then had the additional amazing fortune of being able to go to the University of Pennsylvania to the Center of Health Outcomes and Policy Research to do a postdoctoral fellowship in health services research. So the Center for Health Outcomes and Policy Research, CHOPPER for short, is the center started by Dr. Linda Aiken, who is famous, I think, for her work around the nursing work environment and staffing and nursing education and how those things are all associated with patient outcomes. Things like magnet status, a lot of that has come out of Linda's work. So I got to do that postdoc there. And that is a little bit about how I get to be here today. (laughs) Well, that is a great story and kind of answered our next question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because a lot of people do that and they usually have more to say with the next question. So our question that we love to ask our guests is what informs your perspective? So in other words, why do you do what you do and what is most valuable to you? Yeah, such a good question. I really appreciated that you guys asked that. So I chose to become a nurse specifically and a midwife because I think that relationships are where the magic happens. Like relationships between human beings, like that's where healing happens and that's where it doesn't happen. And that is specifically why I chose to become a nurse and a midwife. I considered becoming an MD and I'm not saying that MDs don't also like have that interest or those relationships, but the nursing worldview and that model of care spoke to my image of what a healer is and the kind of healer that I wanted to be and how important relationship is. And obviously, like midwife means with woman, right? We're all about like being with that kind of relational piece. And that also, I think, speaks to my interest in communication and research around communication. And so that is part of why I do what I do. And then I also do research because I want to transform maternity care in the U.S. and especially inpatient maternity care. And if we dig deeper, why that's so important to me, there's the professional reason, right? I'm a midwife and I care about women, women's health, maternal health outcomes. I don't think that you can do research around maternal health outcomes in the U.S. without realizing that really it's all about health equity. I don't think you can talk about any maternal outcome in the U.S. without talking about health equity and the lack thereof. And this is personal for me because (laughs) my husband is black, my babies are black. And so And I think, honestly, that the best research is personal, right? Like there's something in your story that drives it. There's some kind of experience that you've had that informs your desire to like ask these questions. So I have a professional reason. I have professional experiences that drive me to this, you know, and working as a midwife in West Virginia, a lot of the women that we served had opioid use disorder during their pregnancy. And so, you know, my interest in like, serving those women has also informed the research that I do. But my research is also, it's personal, right? It's always personal. And so when I do the work that I do, uh, the work that I hope to do, I think about my kids. I think about my husband. I think about our family. And so here I am. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I love the answer to that question. I also want to take a quick moment to, as always, we always appreciate our guests who take time to record with us because we know everyone we record with is super busy. But what you all don't know is that Rebecca is also recording right now with her tiny human strapped to her chest sleeping. So (laughs) she is doing the, the mom bob while she is recording with us. So thank you, Rebecca. I know that this is a lot for you to do all at once and we appreciate it and we appreciate you taking the time to record with us and your sweet little nugget. So <laughs> well, I, just, I hope that I'm not making y'all seasick. No. <laughs> like, 
moving up and down anyway. But as yeah. fellow mom bobbers, I almost feel like the need to like bob with you. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so no, you're just yeah. fine and thank you. All right, so like we said, today we're going to talk about nursing culture and health outcomes. So let's jump right in. Our first question, Rebecca, is can you first start out by describing how you define nursing culture and how does nursing culture impact health outcomes? Yeah, so I think we can think about nursing culture in a few different ways, right? I think that there is the historical perspective on nursing culture, culture as a a larger thing. When I think about nursing culture as a researcher, frequently I'm thinking about uh, the work environment. So that's like a hospital specific or a a unit specific construct that we measure. And I'm happy to talk about that more. So there's, there's research that shows that if we're talking about nursing culture as like the work environment, there's research that shows that that work environment is associated with patient outcomes, things like mortality and failure to rescue and a bunch of other quality and safety outcomes. I think when I first started thinking about this question and how I wanted to answer it, my mind was sort of thinking about maternity nursing care and nursing culture. And I started thinking about our history and the history of racism in our country and how that informs nursing culture and how nursing has developed in this country. I don't know if we want to go down that path. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So nursing has a history in the U.S. and it's deeply entwined with racism, right? Like, and that's sort of a mild way of putting it. So most nurses in maternity care are white women, right? And we carry baggage. We have benefited from systems of white supremacy. And even if we don't give conscious assent to these, obviously, right, they have shaped us and how we are and the resources we've had access to and how we just view the world. So I tend to think about racism as a wound. And to heal wounds, you have to recognize them first. And I think that racism is a kind of leprosy, right? We don't actually, those of us who have it don't actually feel it. And so even though your body might be rotting and pieces are falling off, you're like, I'm okay. (laughs) So people make culture. So historically, like we've made this culture that already exists, and then we continue to contribute to it. And if we have this disease that we have a hard time even recognizing that we have, like we have made this culture that is disease in and of itself. So there's this nursing culture. And I should say, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about this white nursing culture, but there's obviously like a long history of nursing you know, we could get into how we even define nursing. Is it this professional thing? There are people who do nursing who like, anyway, that's a different conversation. There have obviously been like black women who are nurses for a very long time, right? There's uh, there's a great article called um, The Hidden Figures of Nursing. And there's a long history of women who were brought over the Middle Passage, right? Who had been not professional RNs, right? But had been nurses, had been healers, had been midwives, you know, pass those traditions down. Obviously, like Harriet Tubman, for instance, was a nurse and did work, uh, worked as a nurse. Sojourner Truth worked as a nurse, right? So there's like a long history. So I'm talking about this like white culture of nursing and, you know, we make that culture. And so issues that we've had historically as a country, issues that we continue to have, like those are part of nursing culture. I don't think there's a way to get around that, if that makes sense. So like we've built this thing. So I think now we're having conversations about it, but this is nothing new, right? Like this, like racism and white supremacy in nursing has been there from the beginning because we build it. And this is like, some people refer to racism as America's original sin. I think that's probably not too far off. We could, you know, people could discuss that. But so there's like that, when I think about nursing culture, I think about it that way, right? This culture that white folks have built So there's that culture. And I think that culture impacts patient outcomes. And I think that it impacts patient outcomes when you think about 
racism and how that impacts like interpersonal relationships and also structural racism and how that impacts like where people get care, the kind of care they're giving, what they have access to, resources they have access to. So I think I think about nursing culture on that level, sort of this historical, social, cultural level. And then there's also nursing culture on a unit, right, in a hospital. What is nursing culture like there? So, and like I said, there's, you know, research that has linked pieces of that nursing culture, like work environment and burnout, you know, things that might be part of that to patient outcomes for better or for worse, right? The better your work environment, typically the better the patient outcomes. People have had this lived experience, right? You probably had this experience. You work in a place that you love, right? You like the culture is supportive. You like the people that you work with, they're supportive. You sort of have that additional to provide good quality care to do like go the extra mile. And when you work in a place that sucks your soul, anything you can do to like go to work and it really makes it hard to care, like to give your best effort and to care for people. So I think that there's a larger question about how, like if you worked in a place where nursing culture, let's say nurses in that hospital, leadership in that hospital was dedicated to health equity and improving health equity, right? What would that look like in terms of patient outcomes? I don't actually think we've seen that yet in the research. I don't know that we've actually seen people go there. I think there's still a lot of research that's being done, like, let's describe racial disparities, as opposed to like, what do we need to do to move the needle on this? So I will say as a side note, and we can, I'm happy to talk about this more. I've been doing research recently looking at the cesarean section rate among low risk black and white women. So low risk cesarean rate is a quality metric for you know maternity care. And I've actually, we've actually seen, I'll call them high-performing hospitals, but hospitals where black and white women have equivalent low-risk cesarean rates, which is amazing, right? I feel like most of the literature has focused on, you know, black women have poor outcomes and they tend to give birth in places that have higher rates of C-section and higher rates of severe maternal morbidity. And they also have higher rates of C-section and severe maternal morbidity. So to find these hospitals where there are at least equivalent rates is like, oh, there are some hospitals out there that are at least doing something consistent, potentially. I don't know that I'd call it equity, but this is different and it's remarkable. And so what are they doing? So in terms of a nursing culture, like, is there a nursing culture that's different there? I'd love to know, right? Are they, what are they doing different that there's at least something equivalent going on? Like, again, I don't, it might not be equity, but at least it's equivalence. Anyway, so that was long-winded. <laughs> no, there's a lot of good stuff in there. And I think you kind of addressed our next question, but I'm again, I'm going to ask it anyway, in case you, you know, you want to dig deeper into this issue. Mm -hmm. But from your perspective, what do you believe about nursing culture is so impactful on health outcomes? So nursing provides a vast majority of inpatient care, right? Like you, you could argue that you go to the hospital for nursing care. You might need surgery, but you stay in the hospital because you need a nurse at your bedside to help you get better, right? So nurses provide the vast majority of bedside care. They're the ones you see the most and relationship matters. So I think this is maybe sort of getting away from nursing culture, but I think this is one of the ways that nurses really impact care. It's the communication piece, how nurses function as a team with the healthcare team. I think that's part of why nurses are so impactful on patient outcomes. So there are different ways to look at this too, right? Like nurses are also impactful on patient outcomes because of the work that we do, right? So when, I don't know if anyone's taken the NDNQI survey, the National Database of Nursing Quality Indicator Survey, one of the sets of questions are about missed nursing care. And so these are items of care that are really important to patient outcomes. And so in a, in a maternity setting, it's stuff like ambulation, patient education, pain medication, 
procedures, like are you doing the procedures that you need to do, support, emotional support, right? And so when you think about labor, I mean, getting up and moving, that's massive for a good outcome. Having a nurse who's supportive, who's communicating well, who provides education, like we know those things are linked to increased rates of spontaneous vaginal birth, lower C-section rates, like it's critical for those outcomes. We haven't yet drawn those connections in research, but sort of theoretically, conceptually, like this is why nursing care is important to health outcomes. Well, we did a study and we were looking at the effect of staffing at different work environments and how those things inf- impacted missed breastfeeding, teaching and support. So breastfeeding is really such an important outcome. Again, it's a quality metric. And nurses do most of the breastfeeding, teaching and support in a hospital typically. So what we found in doing this research was that if you worked in a unit that had a poor work environment and poor staffing, you had the most, like those nurses reported the highest level of missed breastfeeding, teaching, and support. And then in those units that had, again, the poor work environments, as staffing got better, the rates of missed breastfeeding, teaching, and support decreased. So the staffing made a difference in those units with poor work environments. In the units with good work environments, they had the lowest overall, they had the lowest missed breastfeeding, teaching, and support, and staffing didn't make much of a difference. What we took away from this was that really the work environment, the place where you're working, is the fundamental thing. Staffing makes a difference, but the work environment is fundamental. And there's other research in this area that has also tied staffing and missed nursing care to exclusively breastfeeding on discharge. So there's that piece. And then you could overlay, and I don't think anyone has, to the best of my knowledge, I haven't seen this work yet, you could then overlay health equity, right? like supporting black women in breastfeeding, right? Like that, we know that they're like, (laughs) oh, we know there's some health equity issues there, right, in breastfeeding. So, but we've just done this sort of basic work around nursing resources, I'll say, and breastfeeding is an outcome. So that's one way that nursing culture impacts a maternity outcome of breastfeeding as an example. So, but then as I was thinking about this, again, I was thinking more broadly of the nursing culture. And so I was thinking about communication. So we know that communication is a leading cause of preventable maternal mortality. And (laughs) I also, when I think about communication, I think like, here's one of the places where interpersonal racism can work its way out. And it doesn't even look like calling people names, right? It looks like not listening. It looks like not hearing. And so I think about Serena Williams' story about how she's in the hospital and she goes to, I think, the nursing desk. She's like, hey, I'm having a pulmonary embolism. And they're like, that's nice. Go back to your room because, you know, what do you know? And she is having a PE. But if there is a larger body of qualitative literature, qualitative research out there, and Black women say repeatedly, y'all don't hear us. Y'all aren't listening. And so I, I tie that back to... I mean, there's obviously a personal piece, but I sort of tie that back to nursing culture too. What does nursing culture look like at that hospital on that unit? What are folks doing that either supports or doesn't support communication and then either supports or doesn't support communication with folks that we somehow see as different? So I think that nursing culture is so impactful on health outcomes because we provide the majority of care. And a lot of that care also goes undocumented. And so I think how do you document relationship or communication it's really hard. And there are a lot of intangibles that we can't measure that influence things. It's just sort of an aside, but I was having, it's related, having a really interesting conversation with another faculty member about safety. And so maybe you're familiar with Ina Mae Gaskin and her sphincter law. So like women need to be in a place where they feel safe to give birth, to relax, to be able to give birth. And one of the things that we know about the racial disparity in C-section rates is that Black women are more likely to have a C-section for non-reassuring fetal heart tones. White women are more likely to have a C-section for a failure to progress. 
And so I was talking with my colleague about why do black are black women more likely to have a C-section with non-reassuring fetal heart tones? And my colleague said, well, if you're in a place where you don't feel safe, you don't necessarily trust the people who are taking care of you. Think about the kind of physiologic response you have to being in that environment. And if you're having that kind of physiologic response, think about the physiologic response your baby is having to your physiologic response. So again, this isn't anything that has been borne out in research. This is sort of, you know, researchers talking together and thinking like, how are these connections made? And then you have to, you know, do the research to actually test it. But I think that there is research out there to say, you know, this is a this is a plausible conceptual framework. <laughs> and another way that nursing culture impacts health outcomes, like if white nursing culture is a place, these are all these white women and we're not creating a place that's safe, right? Or just being white is a place that's not safe. That's going to have an impact on outcomes. I mean, obviously, especially for black women or women of color. Obviously, I'm talking about all these negative things. Obviously, I believe that nurses can also provide care that makes for really amazing patient outcomes, right? And there certainly are stories of that. And I think that there are also ways that we can heal and change. So this is actually a story of hope. This is not all like darkness and downness. But I believe really strongly that nurses impact health outcomes. So I became one. So I have a question, um, and it might not be in your wheelhouse of expertise, which is totally fine. And you can tell me that. But I think a lot about nursing culture and how that's set by leadership. Mm -hmm. And nurses are kind of traditionally part, you know, they're obviously a huge part of the system but not mm-hmm. always the ones with power. Mm-hmm. So this is my hypothesis, but it's like they don't have power over their work environment. And then they're like almost putting power and control onto their patients, specifically mm-hmm. minority patients. But also just that, you know, I think that's partly why we need more nurses and leadership roles at not just like a chief nurse executive, but all the way to the top, uh, because they can set that culture and provide that power and control to nurses to advocate at least for their patients, which I think is Mm -hmm. what most of nursing really intends to be. Hmm. So when we measure the work environment, actually, one of the domains is, well, actually, these questions appear in a number of the domains, but the work environment, as we measure it, includes measures like questions about do you are nurses in leadership? Do nurses have opportunities to set the policies that impact their care? Is the CNO easily accessible, very visible? Does the CNO have equal power with other folks in the C-suite? Are there opportunities to advance? So actually what you're talking about of having nurses in leadership is a part of like the work environment as we measure it using this particular, there's a particular scale that we use developed by Dr. Eileen Lake, who's also at Penn. And we, you know, that's what we typically use to measure the work environment, what I typically use to measure it. And so that is included. So if, if you worked in a hospital where, you know, there's no, there's no nurse in leadership, there isn't really a way to participate in committees or to influence the policies that impact your care, nurses would score that hospital lower or their unit lower in the work environment. So that makes a difference for work environment. And I will say, too, that that's part of how I got here, because I started out as at a hospital where nurses were really received a lot of resources, a lot of attention, right? It was a very good work environment. It was a magnet institution. So there was a lot of emphasis on having nurses in committees and set policies that impact their care. And the CNO was very visible and super active. And when I worked as a midwife, I worked in a practice where there were no nurses in leadership. 
when I went to a department meeting, all of the OBs had their individual vote and the midwives as a whole, all six of us had one vote. And so that made a massive difference for how we felt like the agency that we had, we didn't get to set really of the policies that influenced the care that we gave so much. I mean, we did a little bit of it, but I think not as much as we really needed to, to be able to feel like we were providing the best care to actually provide the best possible care. I will say in terms of how that relates to health equity, I'm not actually sure because again, most of these folks are white. And so we bring these systems and these cultures with us a lot of times, not consciously. Like we're not really thinking about it as we go. And so I don't know how that affects care and outcomes for people of color. And it might actually impact it differently depending on who it is. No, that's exactly where I was getting at. Like, what would you say about the role of leadership and nurses and leadership in in culture and potentially health outcomes? Which I think she spoke to. Yeah, you did. But, you know, I think it's a really good question because I think when you're talking about, like, how do we make cultural change? I think you want leadership and grassroots. I mean, ideally, you have both groups like working towards the same place. And I will say I work in a health system that is trying to do this, right? Leadership is trying to do this, is talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, is trying to head in that direction, is trying to listen and make change. And it helps to have that also, I think, coming up from the grassroots. Again, I, I don't know that research has really gotten there yet, but I do think it makes a difference in practice, like what you hear messaged by your leaders, like we know that that kind of leadership communication makes a difference. Like this is what we value as an organization. And so then you as a nurse, if you're like, oh, this this organization values things that I really don't, you can potentially, potentially choose to go elsewhere. Or you can say, you know what, their values are spot on. Like they're trying to do this equity work. That's where I want to be. I also want to be doing this. So I want to switch gears just a little bit. So part of what you had talked about in your introduction was location, how location mm-hmm. matters. And so from your perspective, can you share with our listeners how hospital location, like zip code, impacts the quality of care delivery, especially as it relates to where pregnant folks give birth? So I don't know that it's location specifically that matters, but I do think that where you give birth matters. And we do know that Black women tend to give birth in different hospitals than where white women give birth. Black folks tend to be clustered in particular hospitals. And there is research that those hospitals tend to also have fewer resources. There was an interesting paper that came out not so long ago that was just, this wasn't maternity specific, but the infrastructure of those hospitals was older. They tended to have less capital to do things with. they They didn't have as much money backing them up. And there is a body of literature, specifically in the like severe maternal morbidity literature, that has shown that like black women tend to give birth in hospitals that have higher rates of severe maternal morbidity, right? So this is work that's been done by Dr. Elizabeth Howell, Dr. Andrea Crianga. For those are just two. I mean, there are a whole bunch of folks that have done this work. And Liz Howell did work where she was like, you know, if black women gave birth where white women are more likely to give birth, they'd actually have significantly lower severe maternal morbidity rates. So, and to be clear, it's not black women who drive those rates. So I can use an example from a paper. So I got some funding from the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics to do research about low-risk cesarean section disparities between black and white women. And what we found was that we looked at hospital categories, like the proportion of black women that the hospital served. And so we had high, medium, and low categories. And we were looking at the low risk. So these were all low risk women. So they should be at low risk for having a cesarean section, both black and white women. So we're sort of controlling that way. These are all low risk women. And 
we found that Black women are more likely to give birth in hospitals that have higher cesarean rates. And white women, as the proportion of Black women that a hospital served increased, their cesarean rate increased. And what that suggested to me was that both that low-risk Black women were more likely to have their labor intervened with across the board, and also that they were more likely to give birth in places that intervened, that had higher cesarean section rates. Like the Black women themselves weren't aren't driving that rate. There's nothing about being Black that says you have an increased risk of cesarean section apart from racism, <laughs> right? So, so I do think like where you give birth makes a difference. I don't, we haven't really figured out what it is in those hospitals that makes a difference, but that's why I'm really interested in that those high performing hospitals and what they do and trying to understand like, what is it about the culture? What is the leadership doing here? Or do they have protocols that everyone follows? Or is there a a real emphasis on equity at this hospital? Or is this a hospital that is historically black? Who knows, right? Like it's, it's a big question mark. Is there any evidence to suggest that the race of your nurse matters if you are a black pregnant person giving birth? So there is, so I'd, say, I'd say that there's like mixed research. There's a study that's getting a lot of press right now where I think they were NICU or a pediatric setting. I think it was a NICU where having a race concordant provider, you know, made a difference in that particular setting. And I think that there is literature that suggests that racial concordance makes a difference. I think that there's also research out there that, that suggests that maybe it doesn't make a difference or it's mixed. And I think the qualitative literature is mixed as well. I think another way to think about this, though, is that Black women are going to give birth where they're going to give birth. I think it's really important to open doors and increase the number of Black doctors, midwives, nurses that we have. But we can't resegregate our healthcare system, right? So that, like, I don't know that racial concordance really is the answer. Does that make sense? Totally, yeah. And I don't think that we can use that as an excuse Mm -hmm. or as an out. I think that we need to work on getting more folks who aren't represented into the healthcare professions, for sure. But that doesn't excuse us from doing the work that we need to do as nurses around the culture of systemic racism that we have, because we have to care for whoever we have to care. So we need to do that work so that we can care for whoever is brought to us with like the most, the best, most compassionate, most human care. And if we're doing that, and if we connect with people at that to be at that heart level, that real relational human level, like this is another human being. This is my brother. This is my sister. And I am their brother and sister. Like I'm caring for them with everything that I have. What difference does race make? Yeah, that was a nice response. Yes. And for more on that, we have an entire episode called Neutral and Compassionate Care. (laughs) So be sure to check that out because that would dovetail perfectly with what you just said, Rebecca. But I do appreciate, Rebecca, how much you really focus on the relationship piece of it and how important relationship and communication is, not just because we're biased and that's why we have this podcast, <laughs> but but it really is so important. And like you said at the beginning of the of, of our recording, that relationships is where the magic happens. And I think that is certainly something where the magic can happen to also improve culture and improve patient outcomes. So I think mm-hmm. it's incredibly important isn't really a question. This is more of just a statement. And of course, you can add on to my statement. But I'm imagining that in your research, it's really hard to parse out the health outcomes that are associated with the nursing culture on that 
labor and delivery unit, for example. Mm -hmm. And because I do a lot of preconception research and Mm -hmm. know, you know, like the weathering hypothesis and, Mm -hmm. and there's so many sort of predetermined things before that, that mom and that baby even come to labor and delivery that have kind of already been set forth, especially when we think about racism and systemic racism. So I'm I'm just imagining how difficult that is to parse out in in your research. Yeah, I mean, I think this is true of any quantitative research, right? Because it's, it's artificially simple. Human life is so much more complex. And research makes it sort of stupidly simple. So it is a fancy way of saying it is there's lots of unmeasured bias. <laughs> right? But yeah, it, it is difficult to parse those things. I do think it's possible. But yeah, I don't know if I'm answering your question if I'm just rambling again. No, no, I was just kind of making a statement more than anything, yeah. just because of the work that I've done and uh, read. And so I appreciate that, though. Sort of dovetailing on that. So this is yeah. something else that I'm interested in. So weathering is certainly out there as a as a theory. And then, you know, we see like exposure to stress in terms of structural and interpersonal racism and sort of what that does to uh, like biomarkers, right? Inflammatory biomarkers. I mean, like there's all kinds of stuff out there. And what I think that there's less of and what I would love to see more of is research that looks at strengths and resilience and the strengths and resilience of the Black community and Black women. Like, so imagine being exposed to all these centuries of oppression. And yet you see they're beautifully healthy moms and beautifully healthy babies. And so like what makes for strength and what makes for resilience, what makes for a high performing hospital. So I'm I'm interested in like seeing if we can also flip that script a little bit. And I think too about, so there's a long history of grand midwives, especially in the South, women in the Black community with you know, so much experience and ability. And I can, I've read stories about just incredible outcomes that they had. These were highly skilled providers and working in areas that had very little resources, right? You'd think that they would have like not so great outcomes. They have amazing outcomes. And I wish those stories were told more frequently. I think that that's important. And I will say the other thing that I feel like I don't see enough in research. So I think that there is, I don't see enough of a focus on nursing. So I see there's this focus on like Black women, improving health outcomes for Black women. There's a growing like a groundswell, I think, of researchers, like Black researchers who are doing work with and in and from the community, which is so important and so needed. And I feel like that the white supremacy and racism lives in us, like the white nurses. <laughs> and so I feel like, like we, like the research needs to focus, if we want to improve outcomes, like we should be focusing research here. It's not like the Black women that are causing these issues, right? We're propagating these systems. And so I feel like there's actually, like, if we want to change health equity and maternal outcomes in the U.S., we need to be paying more attention to the structures and the providers, including nurses in those structures. And I think that actually leads very nicely to our next question, uh, which is, this is a bit of a heavy question, but we felt this bared asking in this podcast. But as we've talked on previous episodes, there is systemic racism that is built into healthcare that leads to the disparate rates of maternal mortality experienced by women of color. In what ways do nurses knowingly or unknowingly participate in and uphold systemic racism in healthcare? Yeah, so I think we were, we sort of talked about this earlier. There's a whole lot of unknowing. When we don't know our history, 
when we don't know where where we come from and, and the sense of like we don't examine it or we have sort of a superficial relationship with it. I think those are ways that we uphold systemic racism, racism in healthcare. I think in, in nursing education, when we don't own the wholeness of nursing's history, that's another way that we uphold systemic racism. When we teach Florence Nightingale and Tuskegee, and that's it, I think we uphold systemic racism in healthcare. There's so much that nursing wants to tell in nursing education. I think people want to tell a positive story about themselves, but we leave a whole lot of unknowing. We don't acknowledge all of the people of color who have provided nursing care. We don't acknowledge the way that racism, all the many ways that racism has informed nursing practice carries through to today, continues on. When I was in nursing school, the textbook that we used taught from the white body. I mean, it was, I think everyone uses Bates, right? Like, you know, and the pictures, the normal body is white. Well, the normal body isn't white, right? But those are ways that as nurse, like in nursing education, that we uphold systemic racism, right? And then there are like little special boxes about if your patient is black, maybe, maybe bruising looks like this. Well, that's, I mean, that is a way in which we keep white supremacy in place by teaching from the white body as being normal. And so I think there are a lot of ways that we unknowingly participate and uphold systemic racism. I think in terms of knowing, <laughs> so there are folks that are legitimately white supremacists, like in terms of like consciously choosing that perspective. And some of those folks end up in nursing. I think that there's also knowing when we know some of these things, but choose not to speak out. We know that we have benefited from systems of white supremacy and we continue to take those benefits without trying to like open doors or change things or speak out when it would cost us. So I think there's probably more to it than that, but that is some of it. And I will say too, I think that we uphold it in practice as clinicians, right? We uphold racism in practice in a number of different ways, how we interact with people, just sort of this culture that we've talked about, nursing culture and the history of it. It's in education, nursing education, and then it's also in research. I mentioned Tuskegee because I feel like what frequently happens is people are like, ah, they teach Tuskegee and then they feel like they've checked their box, right? Racism is this thing that used to happen, but it doesn't anymore, which is why we're teaching about it. <laughs> like, so I have a few different examples I can give of racism in research that's published in peer-reviewed journals or recent experiences with this. So we, I wrote a paper, a viewpoint that was published in JAMA Peds, and we talk about a paper that was published in a peer-reviewed journal. Actually, there were a few of them, two of them. And this was about neonatal abstinence syndrome. And these papers said that Black infants required less treatment for neonatal abstinence than white infants. There's nothing about being Black that requires less treatment for neonatal abstinence syndrome. They received less treatment. This is racism in medical practice. And so we wrote this piece for JAMA Peds. So that's an example, I mean, of recent peer-reviewed published racism. And that kind of stuff happens all the time. I've seen it in qualitative research, qualitative research that was done around, if I'm remembering correctly, it was had to do with uh, safe sleep. So baby in a bed on its back, but like in a room with you, but not in the bed with you. And if I'm remembering correctly, they were, the researchers were interviewing Black women about why they chose not to follow guidelines. And the way that the findings were interpreted were really derogatory. Like the words that were chosen that were used were derogatory. And one thing that some of the, some of the Black women in the study said, this was something their mom did. They talked to their mom, they listened to their mom, and so they sort of followed. And it, you got the sense from the researchers like, oh, I can't believe that they did this. I'm like, Psh, 
I listen to my mama. <laughs> you know, I don't like I can't, you know, it's just the way that we interpret our findings as researchers, the questions that we ask, how we interpret those findings, these are all ways that as nurses, we also continue to participate and uphold systemic racism uh, when we don't speak out. When So like I've had a situation where we're writing about racism, we did a study looking at uh, neonatal abstinence syndrome diagnoses, and we found that Black and Hispanic infants were less likely to receive a diagnosis of NAS. They're more likely to receive a diagnosis of opioid exposure. And we sort of talked about racism that drives that. And a peer reviewer said they didn't believe that providers would, would do that, would provide racist care. And so I wrote back and I said, well, I strongly disagree. Here's research to support that. The fact that we're still having those conversations now. So these are, these are like all ways that we continue to knowingly and unknowingly participate in and uphold systemic racism. Yeah, I um, remember that, Nicole, how I was reviewing a manuscript for a nursing journal and I don't remember the exact topic and I probably wouldn't say it because I, you know, I don't like to talk about pre-printed papers, but it was looking at something as, like associated with black women and some kind of a pregnancy outcome. I don't know. And there was no mention of systemic racism in the entire mm -hmm. paper. It was putting all this on to black women like, oh, black women are more likely to do X, Y, Z. And so I wrote a very short rejection response calling out these issues of them not mentioning racism. And, and then I, I got the I got to see the other reviewers comments and they didn't mention that. And it was sure. really and luckily, like the editor stopped it and saw what I was saying. But it got all the way to that point. And who knows, yeah. like if they went to another journal, and maybe that paper is out there now, I have no idea. Yeah. Well, no, and it definitely gets out there. I read a piece not so long ago where it talked about black race as being a risk factor like black race isn't the risk factor for anything apart from racism <laughs> you know but it wasn't talked about as it's like oh being black and you're at greater risk for x y and z i'm like nope you, got, you missed the boat on that one yeah so i i hear you with that and i think also places like when people when we use different language for it when we use language like implicit bias or we try to soften the language around it i think that actually also is probably a way that we Sort of participate in upholding yeah and when we just as white folks when we don't address racism i think that's a way that we're participating because it really does impact so much it does and and the whole time you're talking I, and i don't want to get weeds in tangential because this really could get super tangential but it just made me think right now in the state of iowa the amount of legislation coming out on book banning censoring what teachers are teaching and that we should have videos in classrooms so that parents can see what their kids are being taught mm -hmm. and explicitly cutting out, you know, that we shouldn't talk about. I think one I saw was part of MLK's uh, I Have a Dream speech, not talking about Ruby Bridges. And mm -hmm. so, you know, get hear everything you're saying and then to think about the active steps that legislation is taking when you think mm -hmm. about that education piece and and mm -hmm. how how can we ignore how we got here when we think of what we're actively doing now yeah. to yeah. not address this issue. So it's incredible. So let's go back to communication. Can you talk about what role does communication have in nursing culture and health outcomes? Yeah, so I think that we have a lot of work to do in this area, like when it comes to 
maternity outcomes specifically, which is sort of where my area of expertise is. So we know that communication is one of the leading root factors in preventable maternal mortality. We know that Black women carry sort of the burden of maternal mortality in this country, right? It's very much a health inequity situation. So communication is an issue, but how that is linked specifically to racial disparities in maternal outcomes isn't clear in the research. I think conceptually, I could talk with you about I think it's related to maternal outcomes, right? We talked about Serena Williams' story earlier. There are many stories in the media of Black women saying, I'm I'm having an issue and not being heard, not being listened to, and the result is that they die or they become very sick. So when I, I went back and I looked to see, well, are there interventions out there related to communication in the maternity space, you know, ways that we can improve communication? And specifically, if most of maternity nurses are white women, And we're talking about improving birth outcomes for like black women. What are things that we need to be intervening with on the nursing side to at least basically improve the quality of care and make it more respectful and more dignified and at least try to care for other people like they're the human beings that they are. Right. And what I was finding is that none of the interventions that I could find were actually most of it was focused on healthcare team communication, which is, you know, its own issue. Some of it was focused on team patient communication. None of the research that I found addressed racial disparities in patient outcomes and how communication plays a role in that. There is a recent paper that came out proposing a communication intervention to improve improve communication like in the inpatient maternity experience, a team birth paper. And they they call it team birth. And there's, you know, basically put a, a whiteboard up in the patient's room and then you have like regular huddles to update care and they're trying to be patient centered. But it didn't address racism. And they were interested, I think, if I'm remembering specifically, like in decreasing unnecessary cesarean sections. Well, that is, again, a burden that is borne predominantly by by Black women. And so to not address how racism plays into this situation, they did mention it once in the discussion as like, this is something that should be addressed in the beginning. And like, they're just working on this intervention. But I think not addressing racism from the outset, especially when the outcome that you're looking at is a massive health equity or lack thereof case is is an issue. Because if you're saying like, if we have a whiteboard and now we can all communicate, but you're not paying attention to all of the unspoken things in the room and all of the history that we carry and all of the like, and you know, I call it white supremacy, but I should make it clear that you don't necessarily have to be from Northern Europe to participate in white supremacy and to gain its benefits. I think there's a long history of like immigrants coming to this country and playing into this system because this is a way to gain social power and then like power in general, right? So that is another story. Anyway, so in terms of the role communication has, I think that we have a lot of work to do, but I think that there is a story that has already been told in the media and there is a story that has been told in the qualitative literature that says that communication is a real pain point in maternity care and significantly linked to health outcomes. Like what happens if you have a traumatic birth No and no one apologizes to you and people don't listen to you? And it's a problem on so many different levels. And it's something that we're not addressing, I think, adequately enough, adequately, period. So totally yeah. agree. So then, so let's talk about what can we do? What can nurses do? How can they effectively begin to change nursing culture and challenge systemic racism? Yeah, I, I think one of the first things is is owning it, realizing that we have leprosy and then owning it, taking responsibility for it, educating ourselves. What do we do to get better? How did we get here? What do we do to move forward? I mean, there's so many resources out there to do that in this day and age. 
So um, something that I've heard from other white folks is like, well, uh, we didn't own slaves. <laughs> like, it, it's not about whether your family owns slaves or not. If we're white in this country, if we're not black in this country, we have benefited from systems that have oppressed black folks. But I think it takes really hard work. It's very hard work to do. It's painful work for a white person to do. Healing from leprosy is a painful thing, right? Starting to feel where you're rotting. That sucks. I think listening is the other thing. So as we start to read, as we start to educate, it's the listening that makes a difference because we can read something and not listen to it. And you don't have to agree with everything. There's all kinds of stuff out there. But I think we have a responsibility to own where we came from and where we are currently, both individually, like what our family story is and how we've crafted identities as white individuals, and then what we've done as as nurses to exclude people from our profession, exclude Black women from our profession, Black people, other people of color from the profession, how we've worked to exclude them from leadership, to excluded them from education, owning that, right? What we've done to shut them down, the campaigns that were led against grand midwives, right, to shut them down, the way that Black hospitals have been shut down, and then sort of divided up by larger <laughs> white-owned enterprises. I think that these are things that we can start to do, and I think that healing begins to come with them. I think sometimes about um, Archbishop Desmond Tutu's work in South Africa. So like listening to what people said, accepting what they said, and then asking for forgiveness. There is healing that happens in that kind of reconciliation. But this is heartbreaking work, and it's lonely work. It's very lonely work sometimes. But I do think it's possible to heal. I do think that there is hope for reconciliation and redemption. I think that those things are possible. That's what I'm working on in myself and the world around me. And we can all join in that work. I know one of the ways that I've probably grown the most or have done the most challenging is by reading books. And so I'm curious. I have my favorites. But I'm wondering if you have some favorites that you would want to share with our listeners. I think a lot of the ways that this learning has worked for me has been in relationship with my husband. It's been some in the reading and the watching that we've done. And like we've listened to talks on YouTube together and have watched movies together that he was like, you should watch this thing. I had read books before him and I've read some since. But I think a lot of this has come from my relationship with him and like my experiences of race, my experience of racism now sort of from the inside just because of my relationship with him. So like having security called on us when we were trying to buy diapers for our baby because security follows black folks around stores. Like this is a, a normal experience for black folks to have security follow them around stores or to know that they're being watched when they go to buy groceries, right? Like this is most black folks that you talk to, like African-American folks, they're like, oh yeah, that happens all the time. They don't even notice it anymore. I went into a drugstore with my husband in New York City to buy like diapers and wipes for our baby and we heard like we were the only people in there and we heard over the loudspeaker like, oh, customer service to the aisle that we were in. But no customer service came. We hadn't asked for customer service. And it was their way of telling us that they were watching and having those experiences. And then when George Floyd was killed, it became this thing that everyone was it was like this media circle jerk, if you'll forgive me for being really crass. You know, it was like people like all of a sudden they're allowed to watch a snuff film, you know, and they were getting off on it and making money off of it. Right. But like this in the black community, this is nothing new. Right. There's such a long history of lynching and being killed by police or just by white folks out and about. And having the lived experience of like 
I've never worried for my brother or my dad when they leave the house. I don't worry about them when they drive. My brother drives like a bat out of hell. It's terrifying to drive with him. I, right? I do not worry about him getting pulled over every time my husband leaves the house. And like, be safe. And I just, and I pray that like he doesn't have a bad interaction with a cop. And so living with that, like, so that, you know, in terms of like <laughs> how I've learned about it, you know, some of it is, is, some of it has been reading, right? And like one of the, honestly, the first things that came, the first thing that came to my mind was Frederick Douglass and reading Frederick Douglass, honestly, reading Martin Luther King Jr., reading Malcolm X, reading Ida B. Wells. Like there's a historical reading of people's experiences, folks that were enslaved and their experience of being enslaved. The New Jim Crow is a good book to read, right? So just getting a sense of like the scope of this. There are books about systemic racism in education, right? It's like, there's so many books out there. There's White Fragility, White Rage, right? There are like all of these books out there. And I think they're all probably worthwhile reads. But I think, you know, for me, a lot of this learning has been in relationship with my husband. And I don't like some of the movies that we've watched and the videos that we've watched. I'm like, I don't know that I would recommend those to a general audience. <laughs> so I don't know that that's helpful. But I started this journey long before I met my husband. And when I started, a lot of my learning looked like painful conversations with friends of mine and grappling with my family's history and thinking about like how I thought of myself as a white person and realizing that sort of how I constructed my identity and so doing some of that identity work and figuring out like how I thought about myself as a white person and thinking about the ways that I had privilege or not and ways that I had doors open to me as a white person. So, you know, long before I met my husband, there was work that I was doing. So, Rebecca, where can nurses learn more about the work you are doing and improving nursing culture? So you can find me on the professional website at Penn, which I don't have the <laughs> don't have the address for, but I can share it with you. You can look me up on PubMed, Rebecca R.S. Clark. Keep your eyes peeled because a lot of the stuff that I'm talking about are works that are in progress and will be coming out. And I am in the process of setting up a website that will be called Birth Lab. So you can find me at my website. It should be birthlab.co. So that, those are some of the places and I'm and I'll try to keep my work posted there too. Awesome. So I would personally like to thank you so much for your time and commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health through communication. Do you have any last thoughts that you would like to add before we end today, Rebecca? Yeah, I do. I would like to reiterate that we can do this work. And we can transform maternity care in the United States. I do think that it is possible to transform that care and in doing so to really transform outcomes so that we have equitable outcomes in the United States. I think it is possible to own our history and for wounds to be healed and for reconciliation to recur. And I invite you all to join me in that work. We will. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we will continue our parade. <laughs> I really thank you guys so much for having me. It really has been an honor to come and speak with you and to be asked these questions. I really appreciate it so much. We appreciate asking and listening. Yes, thank you. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. We are always looking for new supporters, sponsors, and guests. So if you'd like to be on our show or know someone who you think would be perfect, let us know. You can find more information on how to support us and contact us on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com. <laughs>